Welcome. To Arcade Audio. Welcome to Scared History. Are you afraid of the history? Oh, but I am because I could never watch that show. <laughs> oh, I couldn't either. Also, that was supposed to be a, a match lighting that fully worked for me. Yeah, well, because you can see what I'm doing. Our audience just heard a, a small, <laughs> a small hiss. Podcasting's <laughs> a visual medium. If you had the visual for that, you would know that Cass pulled out a tiny trombone, and that was not a fart. <laughs> Yeah, it, w- it would have been, if you could see it, me, your host, Cass Maher, not your other host, Nat Younger. It's me. No, I couldn't, I couldn't watch as, that as a kid. And also, they had a disclaimer or something. It's like, if you are, ele- you can only watch this if you're like 11 years or older. And it said like, like nine or like 11 or something. Very much like the Disney MPAA rating, yeah. you know? And I remember my sister being like, ah, cats you're only nine or you're only 10 you can't watch this just so she could like boss me around and i was like no i want to watch it so then one time i watched it i was like okay it's really scary like i don't think i should be watching this for me it was that the title of the show asked a question are you afraid of the dark and the answer to that question was like yes thank you no thank you i don't want to watch this okay bye (laughs) i'm going to walk away now okay thank you bye but natalie it's it's Halloween. Season. It's spoop season. This episode will be coming out Shortly. right before Halloween, mm-hmm. I believe. Yes. Yeah, so happy Hallows Eve. Happy Halloween listeners. Oh, wait, Cass, since we've already done a scared history, mm-hmm. is this like scared history, the spooping in? Oh, yeah. I love, I love anytime anyone adds like ending mm-hmm. to whatever, like, the scared scare. history too. The spoopening. The, yeah, the oh, there's scare, a really the good scare-ning. one. The scaring. I think it's gotta be the spoopening. Yeah, because it sounds like poop. God damn it! Guess. Sounds like poop. I actually just watched. Um, I don't do scary. I don't do scary at all. I don't like Halloween. I don't like scary stories. I don't like. <gasps> I mean, I like scary Halloween. movies. Mm, I don't. I've never been into it. Always creep me out too much. But I'll do I, anything for a costume moment. I was tricked. I was not tricked. I was convinced to watch a scary movie and I'm kind of hooked now. I watched, what was it? Clearly left an impact. It, but it was, shit, what was it? Um, watch The Haunting of Hill House. Um, the series. I've heard good things. Very good. Don't watch the sequel, The Haunting of Bly Manor it dumb i watched the others i watched and i can't remember the first one i watched was and i really want to watch the shining now but basically any kind of like haunted house or ghost story i like say it in the first five minutes is like they're a ghost they're i'm just assuming one of the first people we meet are ghosts and it's always the case i mean it's not a bad guess so i can't watch scary movies because i can't watch anything with suspense without 
verbalizing how I feel about that suspense the entire time. I'm also <laughs> just a very like anxious, like tense person. So I don't yeah. need to watch something that's going to make my neck hurt the next day from me having my shoulders all the way up in my ears for like an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband is an angel because truly anything with any suspenseful music or any suspense, not even scary movies. I am the whole time going, I'm scared. I'm scared. Justin, I'm scared. <laughs> Justin, Justin, something scary is going to happen. I jumped three feet in my chair watching Land Before Time. <laughs> what? As, as an adult, because when Sharp Tooth popped out, it was a jump scare and I can't handle a jump scare. Also, and- I love all the names in that long neck, tree mm-hmm. star, sharp tooth. So the scariest thing that I think I've watched <laughs> recently um, was back in August when, for some reason, I watched five Jane Austen adaptation films in a week. And I watched uh, Northanger Abbey, which has like a gothic. Oh, it's, it's not actually scary. It just has like that, like. Natalie, did you say Northanger Abbey and gothic fiction? <gasps> Ooh. Because I'm going to steal your your spotlight and segue into my story. I was telling Natalie, I was like, oh, we need to record our scared history episode. And I was like, I feel like mine is cheating because I'm doing Victorian Gothic literature. Scary stories. Yes. This isn't the origin of scary stories Because scary stories have been around, ghost stories have been around since time immemorial. Um, But kind of what we know as if you go watch a scary movie and it's got a haunted house, if there's a creepy British child in the corner wearing a Victorian dress, you know, it's- That's one of my favorite improv characters to play. (laughs) Just (laughs) a creepy, creepy pallid Victorian child, like, Mm -hmm. mama. (laughs) Yeah. My little waifish Victorian boy. (laughs) Often and you have often the hair for it now. I do. You have the hair. You guys can't Boy, see it, but Natalie know. has just the most perfect curl that she says was accidental, but it, it feels accident. like she had a hot roller in it for three days to prepare for this. <laughs> I did. It's because I knew that I was going to get to bust out my little my little Victorian boy character tonight. Natalie's so I'm also mic. wearing a pinafore. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie's mic doesn't pick it up, but. Every time she pulls and lets go, it goes boing, 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 boing. It's true. It's the closest I can do to a spring sound. Anyway, what we often see in movies as scary stories, haunted house movies, it comes from gothic horror, gothic literature, which was pulled from the early romantic literature. What is romantic literature, Cass? You reading a lot of Danielle Steele? No, but I had to explain to someone once that that's not what I studied. I was talking to someone like, oh, what are you studying? I was like, British lit, mostly Victorian romantic literature. And they're like, you're reading romance novels? I was like, it's... Yes, I majored in romance. That person completely stopped taking me seriously after that because I was like trying to explain it and was like, oh, I'm not doing a good job and it just sounds like romance novels. But I'm here to explain it to you now. Natalie and I talked in one of our episodes, I think it was the first season, about the romance languages, Mm -hmm. French, Spanish, Latin, and how they're not actually called the romance languages because they're romantic in a sensual sense. It's because they derive from Latin, and Latin comes from 
Rome or Roman, Romanic, Romantic. So the Romantic period directly followed the Age of Enlightenment. I'm getting real nerdy, y'all. This is my favorite stuff. If you think about the Renaissance and the rage, ra age, not the rage of enlightenment, although maybe it was, it was all based on reason, rationalism, modernity, and specifically classicism, which was Greek and Roman antiquity, the gods, the goddesses. Anytime you see a painting from the Renaissance or the enlightenment, there's like a naked baby cherub you know, with like a Greek God and like all that shit. So romantic period derives kind of from Roman. It's after kind of Christianity took over and the spread of Western Holy Roman Empire, all that stuff. It was a direct contrast to enlightenment. They want to focus on emotion. They want to focus on nature. The industrial revolution just happened. And they're like, nah, we sick of factories. We sick of smog. Let's go back to nature. And it was kind of trying to revitalize medievalism, this chivalric romance of, you know, knights and like, oh my God, everything's like emotional. And in medieval literature back like old English, you know, you look at Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, King Arthur, any of those kind of medieval British literature, anytime you go to the forest, that symbolizes magic, mysticism, paganism. That's when you run into like fairies and stuff. So is in that fairies AI or fairies AE? I don't know the difference. Fairies and fays. Well, F-A-E-R-I-E-S too. So F-A-E, fairy is another word for fay, F-A-E, which is just an archaic way of spelling and saying okay. fairy. In, yeah, a lot of times in medieval or early British literature, you're going to hear people talk about the fays, mm -hmm. um, and it's spelled F-A-E, and then that turned into fairy, and then it, the spelling just changed. Got it. I'm got sure it, Shakespeare it. did it. He changed a lot of shit. He's made up words. And you know what? We still use them today. So from the Romantic period, that kind of eased into Gothic fiction, Gothic horror. The Romantic period was from roughly 1800s to 1850s, but a lot of scholars will also tell you that it was like 1780s, maybe the 1760s, primarily in the 18th and 19th century. And the Romantic era focused on intense emotion and individualism, breaking off of the Industrial Revolution, which was all about commerce. And people started to get emo. This is where you get your John Keats and your William Wordsworth. And they're like, I just like, I saw a flower and it was just so beautiful. And I need, I need to write a 20 page poem about it. I just have never felt so much before in my life. <laughs> They wanted to focus on experiences that make you feel, which is why they focused on nature so much, which is why you're going to get a 20-page poem about a leaf. They wanted to kind of break away from the coldness of rationalism, of you know, scientific method, of all the stuff they're going through, and kind of be more human and be like, not everything is rational. Not everything is cut and dry, black and white. Let's 
enjoy this world that we are learning so much about with all these scientific developments. Let's go back to nature. Let's go back to our past and our history, which is why a lot of these horror stories that we get in this time, a lot of them go to the past. You look at Frankenstein, like he jumps to the past of a lot of his, like a lot of them are frame narratives of, I'm an old man now and I'm telling you the story of all this horrible shit that happened. Which it's like spoiler alert because like now we know you made it, dude. Yeah. Because you're telling us and you grew old. So like some of the suspense hath been spoiled. And you know what? It hath. It hath been spoiled. spoiled. (laughs) It's important though to, I, I guess it's not really important to know this, but it is interesting to realize where this came from. It's important to to understand the Enlightenment period in order to understand why the Romantics wrote the way they did and chose the subject matter they did. It's not as important understanding that Gothic is an offshoot of that, but it is, it's really interesting when you look at the Romantic era focused on intense feelings. And because of all these emotional poets who focus on love and beauty, we think, oh, the Romantic era is all about intense feelings about love and like emo sad boys. The focus was on this thing called the sublime, which was the use of language and description that excites thoughts and emotions beyond ordinary experiences. Good literature, good art was supposed to transcend. You were supposed to get euphoric almost. And if you were feeling that, that means this is good art. This is true art. It's authentic. That was kind of what they were trying to get down to, authentic aesthetic. And so a lot of people think this means love and beauty, but it also meant the grotesque terror and the supernatural because that is sublime as well. You read something and you're scared shitless. That is an- That is a strong emotional reaction. Exactly. And if you look at kind of later in the 1800s and early 20th century, the early 1900s, a lot of focus on the supernatural. Like this was more in the 1900s, but they would have like seance parties and people were fascinated with trying to reach the beyond. So romantic literature has this, I wouldn't say bad rap, but it has the rap of emotional sad boys, Mm -hmm. but it, it expands into architecture, to visual arts, visual mediums, music. I actually read somewhere and I, I lost the article that said the, the romantic period and the focus on nature derived from landscape architecture, huh. particularly in France when you look at like Versailles and all of these perfectly manicured gardens that it was a science they had books about it how you should order a garden isn't that what um that kate winslet movie i was just gonna say that a little little chaos a little chaos yes and that was kind of at the end because she's like at versailles or something Mm -hmm. i didn't watch that i almost watched that and then instead i watched the uh Alan Rickman, Kate Winslet, Sense and Sensibility. So much better. Also, A Little Chaos was not good from what I remember. But it seems, it's also like two hours long. So if I'm going to watch something long, or it was just like two and a half hours long. Yeah. Sense and Sensibility is long, but I know that I'm getting, getting something good. Yeah. It, 
a little chaos just like was trying really hard to make you feel something about something they didn't make you care about first. Mm-hmm. I was like, nah, but I did ball at the end of it only because it was right after Alan Rickman died mm-hmm. and there was a crane shot. It was like a close up of Alan Rickman and then a crane shot were just pulled out, zoomed out like this wide shot. And so you're just staring directly into Alan Rickman's eyes as he's floating away from you. And I was like, come on guys. Why are you doing this to me? Yeah. So I was like, I hate telling people I cried at that. I was like, no, the movie wasn't good. I just really miss Al. I called him Al. Hey, Nat, uh, can I talk about Iowa for a minute? Honestly, I'm shocked you're even asking for permission this time. It's just that this podcast is sponsored by Raygun and they're headquartered in Iowa. Yeah, but they're bigger than Iowa. They're the greatest store in the universe. Oh, really? Who called them that? Raygun did. Checks out. All I'm saying is don't limit Raygun's excellence to just Iowa. I mean, they've got brick and mortar stores in six cities and like an online empire. They're super important to the fabric of the entire universe. Their t-shirts are like the second most important element and they gain on oxygen like every day. That's true. Also, they are super modest. They are. It's truly awe-inspiring. Gosh, Raygun's just so great. Right? And this is an ad paid for by them. So go check them out at their stores across the Midwest or online at raygunsite.com. Use promo code SHERRYLATER to save on your next order. Uh, now, can I talk about Iowa? Oh, look, we're out of time. But, so if you look at very, you know, in the Enlightenment era, it's like everything's reason. Everything has a purpose. Our gardens, look at a British garden, a typical English garden, it's ordered it's organized there's like the mazes and you know you're snipping out the unicorns and the bushes and everything and i feel like a typical english garden is a little bit more organized chaos than like i feel like it's a little yeah. bit more a little chaos than yeah. a french one absolutely because like um, if you think about Vers- versailles is precision well, so there was this, there was this book written and it was the, like the art of landscape architecture or something. It was written in the 1700s and it was about like trying to naturalize these gardens of like, make it look like organized chaos, like a little secret garden, you know, like it's kind of overgrown and hidden, but it looks real, but there's still purpose in it. And like, yeah, let it, let nature take its hold and make it if you want to organize it as much as you want but make it look natural and then that kind of evolved into this focus on nature and then people wanting to write about it it's so interesting seeing how closely connected art is with well first of all that they thought gardening was an art form which it was i guess is i was gonna say i will fight you i I know it is it 100 is i'm a farmer now i have three herb plants and i'll harvest them soon so i call myself a farmer and if anyone says i'm not i will fight you you're in iowa so sure yeah (laughs) sure derecho derecho was really hard on our crops that were inside so yes so it it spilled into these other art forms architecture specifically and gothic Uh, fiction, gothic horror, honed in on the gothic architecture style, which was big in Germany. It came from the Sturm und Drang art form or movement. Sturm und Drang means... Storm and drain, right? Yeah, storm and drain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh my God. You just said said it with a funny voice. It's, It's storm and thunder or something like that, which Durmstrang 
the school in Harry Potter, some undisclosed Eastern European place, mm-hmm. uh, was named after Stormundrang. J.K. Rowling, she was a tricksy, tricksy little girl. She threw a lot of references in there. Um, so yes, so the, jump into Gothic literature. It's we want you to feel these intense emotions, but they're scary. They're macabre. They're grotesque. And a lot of the famous- But also like a little kinky. That's another thing. So the, so the, the it's like kind of, oh, you have goosebumps. Ooh. Yes. The kind of tenets of horror, especially at this time in the 1800s, was romance, actual like love romance mixed with horror, mixed with like creepy. Mm-hmm. But there's, a, there's like specifically mentions that there's always a little bit of like a love interest or a romantic aspect to it so i can't remember it's killing me and i literally just tried searching my inbox like my emails for an email from 10 years ago that would maybe let me remember the name of this class that i took but i i took an english class that you would have loved in college that was 19th century british literature but of course in the course catalog it had like a sexy name when I say I love when they do that and then you're like, oh, this is not what that sexy yeah. was gonna be. It had its its sexy name was accurate if you knew anything about 19th, if you already knew a little bit about gothic literature. Mm-hmm. If you because it was something like vampire vamps and monsters or something. Yeah. And gypsies, tramps and thieves. Uh, no, that's tra- not vamps. No, <laughs> I wish. Uh thank you, Cher. Thank you so much, Cher. We're always sharing some history here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a uh, I can't remember I can't remember what it's called I remember the teacher the de- teacher is Dr. Jennifer Connery I should try to have her on sometime that's like her focus is is Victorian and Gothic and 19th century Brit lit but we read in it we read like I think I've talked about it on the podcast we read like Frankenstein Jekyll and Hyde but we also did a series like a series of vampire stories including like starting from like the first short story that they think is like the first time that it showed up in 19th century British literature that the first kind of modern vampire as we know it came up mm-hmm. in literature through uh Dracula but we talked about um Nosferatu and so yes about the different interpretations even of a vampire of like this is this is the creepy vampire and then this is the suave sexy vampire yes so it's interesting it's I don't know I just it's all I've been able to think about while you've been talking is this class sexy vampires <laughs> sexy vampire class because that was like a huge part of gothic literature is that like sometimes it was the sublime that we were focusing on let's mm-hmm. say it was more of the great yeah. expansive creepy yeah. and other times it was partial creepy but the greatness the sublime that was being investigated was kind of like this dark moral like immoral romance sort of well and that's why it's so it's so beneficial or at least enlightening to understand that a when the romantic period was what they were all about and that gothic literature wasn't something that followed this period it was in tandem with it it was happening Mm -hmm. at the same time it was exploring intense emotions that were there was a quote I found that said a pleasurable kind of terror. You know, we're not trying to scare the shit out of you, but we're trying to have you like, you know, your little jump moments are like, Oh my God, what's going to happen. 
And since it's coming out of romantic literature, which is focused on intense beauty and love and emotion, of course, there's going to be romance, maybe a little sexy time, and like next to scary. These are two separate heightened emotions. When you put them together, it's like... It's super, super intense. And when we think of authors of scary stories, a lot of times people jump to Edgar Allan Poe, Bram Stoker, Lord Byron, H.P. Lovecraft. But almost 70% of horror stories written in the Romantic period from the 1800s to the 1850s were written by women. Mm -hmm. Women were writing all of these stories. And a lot of times they were either writing them anonymously, giving yeah, their names like as men. A lot too. Yeah. Or, or you yeah. Or it was under, under pseudonyms. Yeah. Or it was considered, you know, kind of fluff. Novels at this time were kind of mm-hmm. starting to get thought of as, you know, fluff, fanciful, just for women. Um, but they were the ones, these were what was selling as horror stories, gothic yeah. literature, and women were the one writing almost all of it. Well, and when you think about the fact that a lot of a lot of fiction, especially that was being consumed at that time, was being consumed in a serial format for the most part, like or it was poetry and short stories, like people weren't really sitting uh, and like reading big long novels, but a lot of things were in like the Penny Dreadfuls and, and Dime yeah. Store novels and whatnot. And a lot of, a lot of um, like what sells in a serialized situation? Suspense. Exactly. Whether it's romantic, like actual, like sexy romantic suspense or spooky suspense. Mm-hmm. Well, and people forget that a lot of times poetry and full-blown novels were written for magazines, like a chapter at a time. Mm -hmm. Some of our like favorite books, long books that were like, oh, this must have taken forever to write. And, you know, they were just given a chapter at a time in magazines and in publications. And it's weird to think about that some of our favorite stories are maybe not fully conceptualized when they're being written. They're just like, I, I got to get another chapter out so I can get paid this week. Can you imagine? And it kind of comes together. Can you imagine if something like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or like if, uh, if like Wuthering Heights or something was like canceled a little bit before the before Bronte thought it was going to be and then she has to like summarize everything yeah. really quickly and kind of try to try to close all those loops <laughs> so like every series that exists now mm-hmm. um it's funny that you say Mary Shelley uh there are a lot of male authors that we think of or that are those stories are pushed more and more but some of the greatest stories where people may not try to hide that they're women but people don't know Frankenstein was written by Mary Shelley Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein in a competition. So her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, was um, a famous writer at the time. Once he died, Mary Shelley actually outshone him. She was a better writer than him, more prolific, better known. Can I say that I I, I know about this little anecdote you're about yes. to share because of a Doctor Who episode? God bless you. And God bless Doctor Who. The exactly. Carmen Diego of adults. Seriously, though. Uh... Lord Byron was kind of, he was like a cad. He was kind of shitty. 
he's like fucking around. He was drinking all the time. He was not a super, he was kind of uncouth. Mm -hmm. And Mary Shelley and her husband, Percy, for being kind of vagabond artists, Percy Shelley was like stealing money from his family and giving out death bonds all the time. Do you know what those are? No. It was like, because he came from a very rich family and he kind of got cut off. And Mm -hmm. so basically it was like, he was portioning off his inheritance. Like, Mm -hmm. so like when my dad dies, I'm going to get this money. I'll give it to you then. And he was kind of being super shitty. Weren't they also kind of a pretty darn cute couple though? They were madly in love. They were so devoted to each other. But the funny thing is, is that they kind of lived this vagabond artist lifestyle. They were the prudest people ever. Like Mary Shelley was like, she hated Lord Byron because he was very caddish and all this stuff. And she was just like, we should all just be proper and polite. And yet she's writing this like amazing, fantastical story. But there was this competition that Mary Shelley was writing all the time. And I think she just started shooting the shit with Byron. And he was like, you suck. Women are dumb. Women can't write a good story. Let's all, since everyone in this fucking room is an author, let's all write the scariest story we can think of. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein and blew Byron out of the water. I can't even remember what story he wrote, but it was like, she came up with Frankenstein, the one of the yeah. scariest stories ever. And she's like, deal with it, guys. I'm a lady in the streets, but a freak in the sheets of paper. <laughs> I love when you I love when you cackle like that. You, pull, you purposely pull yourself away from the mic, but then also zooms like auto adjustment of volume also immediately like goes like no and just stifles your laugh too. So all of a sudden to me, and I'm sure on the recording, you sound like you're eight miles away. <laughs> I naturally just pull away from a mic, even just speaking normally. And when I laugh, I'm like, I'm going to blow up this microphone. Um, Mary Shelley was one of the great female gothic writers Anne Radcliffe I don't know if a lot of people know who Anne Radcliffe is she was the highest paid author in the 1800s not authoress not gothic authoress of people writing shit she was the highest paid she was one of the only women living by her pen I say that because in the movie what is it what's that Anne Hathaway, Jane Austen movie, like being Jane or something like that. Yeah, I think so. Becoming yeah. Jane. Becoming Jane, which I hate that movie, but I love that movie. Nap, quick confession. I can't stop thinking about your birthday cake from last year. Oh, the one from ECBG Cake Studio? Is that where that delicious custom cake was from? Yep, but ECBG does more than cake. They help everyone celebrate the moments that matter. They believe in equality and community and that ordinary moments should be celebrated too, not just extraordinary people's birthdays, wink. They even have online baking classes. Mm, They sound dreamy. You know, if you're still dreaming of that cake, you should check out at ECBG underscore studio on Instagram or their website, ECBG Studio. Well, Anne Radcliffe is a uh, 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 Mysteries of Udolpho, right? Yes, she wrote the Mysteries of Udolpho. Jane Austen references in Northanger Abbey. And this is me getting so far back around for my segue. Northang- <laughs> so Anne Radcliffe was the greatest, uh, or the highest paid. Most of the time when you were getting something published, um, you were getting 12 or 13 pounds to publish your story. Anne Radcliffe was getting four and 500 pounds. Oh, dang. At a time. And she only wrote like five publications, like five stories 
like big popular ones. Mysteries of Udolpho was her most famous. It was one of the biggest ones she wrote at the time. And it's basically, it's set in Italy and it's about this evil count who kidnaps this girl and like hides her in his, the castle of Udolpho and she falls in love with someone and tries to escape. And it's very like, very gothic, very, you know, eerie and creepy and sexy and ooh, you're the bad guy. And Northanger Abbey was written to satirize, satirize. that. Yep. <laughs> yes. So in Northanger Abbey, like uh, Catherine Moreland, Norland? Moreland? Moreland. I think it's Moreland. Yeah. Is visiting this family and the wife had died recently and the, the husband was like a super curmudgeon and she was like, oh, I think he murdered her or he like locked her away like mm-hmm. in Mysteries of Udolpho. And then she realizes that she's being fanciful and she's over. She- yeah. Needs too much. It's funny studying studying literature and studying British literature in college. We talk about the Romantic period. We talk about Enlightenment, Victorian, and then when we talk about Jane Austen, who wrote kind of at the beginning of the Romantic, end of Enlightenment. She's given her own genre. Like it's she she wrote Jane Austen. Jane Austen wrote Jane Austen genre, which. It was essentially just satire, which guys, when they were reading it, didn't get it. Like, it's so emotional. It's about love. It's like, yo, she's laughing at you. Yeah. And she's also telling you, y'all should be more like Darcy. Like, dude fucks up and is a dick and then gets turned down. He's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be a dick. I'm going to be nicer now. Like, he fixes himself. And then uh, another- All all guys take away from, from Austin is like- Girls just like these like tall, dark, brooding guys. And it's like, who can admit when they made a mistake and then can evolve? Darcy is one of the greatest evolutions in literature. Like people don't realize like, oh, she just like bad boys. She's like, no, she doesn't like bad boys. She literally turns him down because he's trying to be a dick and neg her. And then he's like, oh, maybe I should just be nice to the person I like and not be like, even though you're poor, I think you're hot. Like when she literally says. But Anne Radcliffe, all of my better judgment. Against, oh my God. Radcliffe was instrumental to not just gothic literature, but feminist literature. She made her female characters equal to men, allowing them to dominate and overtake typically powerful male villain, villains, creating new roles for women in literature not previously available. By giving them agency, by making them the heroine, which kind of at this time was perfect using horror like that. Like, oh, it's a poor girl being tormented by ghosts or villains. Like, ooh, poor her. And then she comes out on top. And it's maybe not as, you know, aggressive to men because it's like, oh, she's overcoming this this horror, this terror, this ghosty stuff. It's not a direct attack against men. But that's also what horror and science fiction and some of these kind of fantastical genres do. They are able to make statements. They are able to make parallels. But by using kind of an exaggerated or an absurd framing story, conceit, exactly. The world of the play. Yes. By using that, you're not being like, hey, fuck you guys, you suck. It's more abstract. It's higher Mm. thinking. It's creating parallels. Radcliffe may have had some anti-Catholic sentiments, which like, 
so do I, but I was Catholic. And also this feels icky because Britain at the time and still is Protestant, Anglican. And reading this, I was like, oh shit, Anne. Uh, And she had negative depictions of convents and nuns, usually monks as villains, ruined abbeys. And when I heard that, I was like thinking about a lot of horror in modern times. Like there's always a creepy priest or a demon, creepy abbeys, like a lot of horror we see now, like the exorcist. Mm -hmm. There's like a creepy priest and the power of Christ compels you and all that stuff. And I don't know if it directly correlates to this, but in my mind, I was like, is that kind of where it started? These little references to like evil monks or like creepy abbeys. It's not confirmed that she was anti-Catholic, but it suggested partly that it was in response to the Catholic Relief Act of 1791, which it's so weird because you don't think of Catholics being persecuted. I mean, yeah, it's kind of where we started from, whatever. But I don't know. It's just weird. Catholics were not allowed to practice law. So this act like allowed them to practice law, open Catholic schools and exercise their religion. You forget that, you know, like the entire Anglican religion was created. So Henry VIII could divorce his wife. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, nah, fuck you. And a lot of Anne Radcliffe stories were set like in Italy and all this creepy stuff, which Italy, especially for Brits, was the home of the Roman Catholic Church and all that kind of entailed. So I just thought that was a little icky, like, oh, Anne, don't be like that. But also you see a lot of that, those motifs cropping up in horror nowadays. And I'm just wondering if that's, if that's maybe where it came from. I've got one more author that I would like to talk to you about specifically for you, Natalie. I think you might recognize this name for you, Elizabeth Gaskell. Do you know who that is? Can you tell me who that is? I want to hear the whole story. I don't want to interrupt the flow of the story. Okay. Uh, Elizabeth Gaskell was... I already accidentally interjected with the spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) She wrote one of Natalie and I's favorite, well, favorite novel that was then made into one of our favorite series, North and South, which was about industrial England. It was about uh, this woman who goes from the Southern England where it's nature and romance and emotion and naivete. And then she goes North to industrial. It's Uh, factories and feathers. (laughs) Feathers everywhere. She goes to a cotton mill and it's basically Pride and Prejudice set at a cotton factory. Yeah, set in more (laughs) industrial. Yeah, the guy's a dick. He owns a cotton empire. She's like, nah, I'm not impressed by you. And he's like, oh, okay, I guess I'll be nice to you now. She's known for North and South cramp. Cranston, not Cranston. Brian Cranston? No. Oh my God. What is it? It was this, it, it's one of the, one of her novels was turned into like a BBC masterpiece classic, whatever, just like the most boring, most British miniseries ever. Cranford. 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 That's what it is. Jinx. So much to my surprise, she was like a horror queen. The majority of the stuff she wrote were short stories or little like horror anthologies. And she's just pumping out scary stories. And I'm like, 
damn, this just makes me want to go watch North South though. <laughs> I know. And it's never anywhere. Yes. Uh, so yeah, it, it was interesting seeing where when you watch a modern horror movie or read modern horror literature, mm-hmm. a lot of it has to do with haunted houses. A lot of the tropes. A lot of the tropes started and they were novel at the time. They were new. Um, the haunted with house. Those spooky Brits. Them spooky Brits. Well, and that's the thing too. It, it, this is focusing on British literature, but honestly, a lot of it started in Germany. And when we talk about the haunted house, a lot of it comes from medieval castles that going away from classic Greek and Roman antiquity and trying to revive <clears throat> medievalism. So creepy old castles. And then in Germany, Gothic architecture was was springing up. So it's like, let's take this Gothic architecture and the kind of eerie nature of that and write stories about it, which is kind of where the haunted house story comes from. And then the, and then the romance and then the creepy priests and all of it that is so trophy. Please stop putting romance and creepy priests. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> The romance and the creepy priests and the Catholics. So that what? You know. Wait, par- 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 did I did I say something? <laughs> it's so interesting to think of these all as new ideas and novel things that no one had ever read before. And of course, you can see how creepy and elevated these were, especially being enmeshed in a time in literature and art where everything was about feeling and like taking Mm -hmm. one tiny little thing and exploding that into emotion. (laughs) That sounded weird. Also, uh, she was not of the romantic or the Gothic era, but uh, Shirley Jackson, who wrote The Haunting of Hill House, who wrote The Lottery. She was just, if y'all are reading haunted Halloween-y stories, y'all want to get some new literature in there and don't like scary stuff, read Shirley Jackson. She's phenomenal. I'm so excited right now. Okay, yeah. so for our for our listeners at home, before we dug in to this episode, I was like, Cass, I'm going to make you go first because Cass said, let's do something spooky today. And I had already researched a different topic, but I was like, that's fine. I can pivot. And then, uh, boy, did I, I researched two topics. And I said, Cass, you have to go first because I'm going to decide what topic I'm going to do based on what your topic is. And they could, one of them couldn't be more perfect. Oh my gosh. Are you going to tell me what the other one was though? No, I might save it for a, fu- for a future spoop. Okay, sounds good. Uh, the other one's like a nice like little short guy, but I don't love scary stories. I don't love ghost stories, but I do love ancient Med- Mediterranean history. Stop it. And I don't want to say that you're wrong about ghost stories coming from Gothic literature, but I have a source. <laughs> Hold on. Before you say anything, I have to defend myself. I know. You're not saying that ghost stories came from, because... I literally said that when I started. No, I know. But, like, I just want to also throw you under the bus. (laughs) I Uh, love it. I'm under the bus. I'm Regina George. Go. (laughs) Because I'm here with the tale of... uh, I wrote it down phonetically, but I don't agree with the phonetic pronunciation, because I only found one phonetic pronunciation, and I don't think it's right, but whatever. With Phil and Ian and McCates. The one that I don't agree with is McCates. That doesn't sound Greek at all. Yeah. It's, it's like It's like if you pronounced Socrates, Socrates. It's, it's Phil and okay. Ian is, is Phil, P-H-I-L. 
I-N-N-I-O-N and uh, McCates is M-A-C-H-A-T-E-S. I'm going to pronounce it that way because the only thing that I found where somebody said it aloud said it that way, Mm -hmm. but here we are. Right. Continuity. One of the oldest ghost stories in the Western world. I say Western world because there are hella ghost stories in Asian culture. Like there's some hella spooky Chinese ghost stories that I, we have to get to, but we could be here a while. (laughs) And I might not sleep tonight if we do. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, Phil and I and McCates is reported to take place during the reign of Philip II of Macedon. He reigned from, just to give you some time parameters, 359 to 336 BCE. And the story of Philonion and Macates goes as such. The maiden Philonion, daughter of Demostratos and, and Carido of the city of Amphipolis, is married. Wow, that was a fucking mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Is, she's married to a general in Alexander's army. Yes, that Alexander. I was going to say, Philip II was his dad, wasn't it? I think so. Nice. And the general that she married, his name is. You can do it. Craterus, but it doesn't matter because he doesn't come up again. Because Philonion dies just six months, tragically. She dies six months after the wedding. But then she reappears in bodily form in the home of her parents, where she, quote, consorts for three nights with Wait. a young man named McCates. They fucking. McCates is human and Mc- she goes. McCates is mortal. And she is in her bodily form. So as far as McCates is concerned, she a human. She like comes into his room and like basically seduces but, him. But he was But like, Phil Anion knows she's a boo man. <laughs> <laughs> McCates was like a guest at her parents' house. One night a nurse in the household goes in, I don't know, like has to like refill a chamber pot or some shit. And uh that's the wrong some shit. <laughs> <laughs> But she she sees Philonion and is like, holy shit, that's Philonion who we have buried. And so she like runs to the parents' room and tells them, hey, you got to get up and come see your daughter, who is now suddenly by some divine power alive and fucking your guest. <laughs> Because they don't see, she doesn't see them like doing the deed. She like sees them like sitting on the bed. Um, and they're like, what the hell is your problem? You crazy nurse, you go back to bed. But she convinces them that she's not making this up. And finally, the mother, uh, Carido, agrees to scope it out. But it's been like two hours since the nurse saw them. So now McCates and the woman, allegedly Phil and Ian, are asleep. So her mom's like, Okay, that kind of kind of looks like Phil and Ian, but like I'm I don't want to wake them up. I'll wait till morning and then see. So in the morning, though, the girl has left. But Carito demands the whole story from McCates, who reveals that the girl came to him, said she was there without her parents' knowledge, and that she desired him. Wait, and she came to him. Oh, no, I'm gonna have to <laughs> change a lot of my phrasing moving forward if this is gonna be a problem. I'm just really immature. Um. <laughs> He says, but he says the girl's name was Phil and Ian. So now her mom's like, what? I don't know. That's like a really common name. Like, like a Katie. <laughs> so Creed is like, okay, well, 
she should come again tonight. She should come visit you again tonight. So like, let me know if she shows up again. And McCates agrees to come and tell the parents if Phil Nine shows up again. Mm-hmm. She does. And so he does what he said he was going to do. And the parents come and see her and freak the fuck out. Because they're like, you dead. You dead. But then they're like, but it's a, this is a miracle. Our beloved daughter. Hooray. Whoa, wait, hold up. How did she die again? I don't know. She just dead. She just dead. Phil and I, however, her parents are like, hooray. And she's like, y'all, I was busy. <laughs> I had things to do. She's mad that her parents are meddling. Basically, like, she came back from, with, for some reason. To fuck? This, apparently, with this divine power. And her parents are now meddling in her return. And so as punishment, she says that she's going to return to where they had appointed her. So she's going to return to the grave. And literally, she like speaks these words. And then, well, she says, quote, for it was not without divine will that I came here. She says these words, and then like, bam, dies immediately, just like dead body in front of them now on the floor. She doesn't like poof, she dies. Right. So then they're like, "Mm, oh, she's dead again. Maybe this isn't our daughter though. Maybe all of this was a big mistake. And this is an imposter who also happens to have died, but they order her tomb reopened and find that her body is missing because it's dead on the guest room floor of their home. (laughs) And so they have to bury their daughter again. Although actually I think that the, by this point, the town has all found out because gossip mill and I believe that they actually burn the body, that they decide that that's the best course of action because now they're so like- So she can't come back. Now they're like, it's evil. So this, this story, the story of Phil and Ian and McCates is ostensibly a story. It's told by Phlegon of Tralis, second century CE, who names this another um, dude who has a really complicated name, Namakaius of Epirus, Epirus, as his source for the story. And that person is two centuries older than the author. Mm-hmm. And then it's later told again by Proclus in the, in the fifth century CE. It's written in the form of a letter from Hipparchus, a civil authority in Amphipolis, asking for advice from a friend on whether he should report the events to the king. So it's written as though this civil authority is like, this girl came back to life in our town. Should I tell the king and that you'll notice you'll know this from other ghost stories and scary stories that having an authority figure be the narrator Mm -hmm. is a way to give the story more believability yeah it's basically your eyewitness narrator is somebody who carries themselves with authority and it's therefore considered like a reliable narrator for Mm -hmm. the audience another thing that they do that happens a lot in scary stories is they that Flagon steadily increases the number of folks who see Phil and I and alive throughout the story. So it starts with just McCates and then it's McCates and the nurse and then it's mm-hmm. McCates and the nurse and the mom. And then it just like, it keeps the amount of people who see her, see her alive with their own two eyes steadily grows until basically the whole community knows, which is again, so that the story can carry more weight and of believability. So this story is speaking of Germans. This, this story is referenced in Goethe's poem, Die Brau von Corinth, The Bride of Corinth, uh, in 1797 CE. Um, Phil and I and 
makes other appearances in other things, but this is probably like one of the most well-known mm-hmm. reappearances. And Goethe, among others, implies that Philonion is an is an early vampire, which in kind of Greek and Roman, not mythology, but in Greek and Roman culture, a Lamia is a female vampire who sucks the blood from victims she seduces. But it's not like how we think of a vampire, if they're like a separate creature from a ghost. Like a Lamia is a different type. It's just a very dangerous spirit Mm -hmm. that does this because ghosts in ancient Greece and Rome and other cultures were thought to need human blood to sustain themselves. Like they they couldn't keep appearing if they didn't consume blood. Is that why they did like blood sacrifices all the time? Who knows? Shrug. But I guess, yeah, that makes sense. I didn't think about it that way of like, appeasing the spirits of the gods and wanting yeah. to keep them around and keep them sustained through blood sacrifices. That makes sense, actually. I mean, that's uh, why I do it. Wait, hmm? what? What? Hmm? Hmm? what? Uh, <laughs> but besides being entertaining, all stories have like a reason, at least, especially in ancient times, there's a reason mm-hmm. why they're being told, a, a lesson to be learned. And this story, the story of Phil and I and McCates would have reinforced to very important cultural values in ancient Greek culture. And that those are that one, the dead continue to exist after death. And two, that the living should remember and honor them, but give them no thought to like, not give them no, not. Don't try to resurrect them. Don't, no, don't try to, don't try to appease them. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah like don't try to entertain them, them or yeah. like, because in, in ancient literature, it's, becomes very clear that the appearance of a ghost outside of like a dream or very special circumstances Mm -hmm. is a sign that something has gone terribly wrong because they believe that the dead continue to exist after death, but you're not supposed to see them. Yeah. So like for the, for the parents, it's like, you don't have your daughter back. Stop trying to hang out with your daughter. Stop helicopter parenting. Mm -hmm. She got stuff to do, which is also just so like, just so dramatic and teenagery to like come back from the dead just to be like, Mom, I'm done. Leave me alone, door slam. I'm just trying to fuck this dude. <laughs> God, uh, what's a girl gotta do to get some alone time? I thought it was die and come back, <laughs> but apparently that wasn't enough. This lesson of uh, just because I know that you're a Shakespeare fan, this lesson of not entertaining the dead, if you will, is probably most best exemplified by Hamlet, the story of Hamlet, because he refuses to act on the spirit that looks like his father because he knows it's it's probably a trick. Like the devil is trying to trick him into killing his uncle Mm -hmm. in order to damn him to hell. (laughs) Spoiler alert on Hamlet. Macbeth like well I guess that was more prophecies and the ghosts were like bro just stop killing people he sees another ghost he's like I gotta kill 12 more people just like please please stop just like be cool Macbeth yeah but in the same way (laughs) in the same way as uh as Hamlet being like, I shouldn't entertain the thoughts or take action on what this ghost has told me. Phil and I and and McCates, the story of that warns against trusting anyone who returns from the dead because no good can come of it because eventually McCates kills himself because of it. How Greek. How very Greek. 
I, it's just funny because I had put in my notes for this that the creation of the Gothic novel is accredited to Horace Walpole in 1764 with the writing mm-hmm. of the Castle of Otranto. And I, so you were like talking all this and I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this was going to be my segue into this story anyway. So you set me up. In all of my research, because Anne, Anne Radcliffe is, she didn't popularize it. She did, but she was just like, the best at the piece. Yeah. She kind of did popularize it, but she also at the height of the romantic Gothic era, it's just like Anne Radcliffe was your girl. And she pulled a lot of stuff from Walpole. Not yeah. pulled, but like that was kind of her inspiration. She built upon what the foundation that he had kind of laid. But they all like they share similar tropes. One that you didn't one one that I don't think that you a trope that I don't think you mentioned was the like la, not not knowing that somebody is actually a ghost or dead. Like mm-hmm. okay, not knowing that the character is. But you mentioned it when you were like, I anytime I watch any scary movie, I'm yeah. like, that, that's a ghost. And then you're right. Another trope is the burning of the undead to prevent them from coming to life again. That's a pretty common trope. They burn witches and vampires and whatnot. Vikings. Yeah. So they they burn the Vikings. And then, of course, like the trope of like, she was dead all along. I was going to say, when you... When you were telling, starting to tell the story, I was like, that's the most cliche horror trope of Gladys died 12 years ago. Yep. There's no that's way me. you could have seen her on the grounds of the manor. There hasn't been a gardener on these parts in about <laughs> 40 years. Yeah. Who did I see with those pruning shears? <laughs> That, um, that and little scary Victorian boys. Are. Yeah. And it is always little scary Victorian boys in like dresses. Mm-hmm. Apparently just little boys wore dresses until they could fit into their knickerbockers. And it was fucking creepy. Yeah. They didn't have suspenders or anything for the boys. <laughs> so they, their pants kept falling down. And so they like put a little meat on their bones and they had They like- couldn't make them small enough, which is why the industrial revolution happened. So that we we need make- to make suspenders so these little boys don't look so creepy in their old dresses. Yeah, because before it was like, what's the point? You're just going to outgrow it in like a minute. So here's a dress. It'll fit you for a while until yeah. it becomes too short. And then now we're just starting the start of Spring Awakening. Which, and you know what? The Victorians loved a deep tuck. I mean, if we know anything about period literature is that it's like this sexy Colin Firth in a billowy blouse. Like anytime, any excuse to get that billowy blouse wet. Oh, here for wet. I feel like anytime there's like any sort of undress in a period film with a handsome man, his like like tight waistcoat and jacket comes off, and then he's in this like huge gown, and it's like, all right, Papa, Papa likes a deep tuck. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So then, and in the case of McCates, a dead fuck. Hey. Oh, that was really aggressive and I hated it, but also it rhymed. It's like, but also it rhymed, so I had to say it. I had to. That's the law. Legally obligated. So I'm so glad that I almost feel like mine should have gone first because like chronologically, <laughs> but I also, I was, the second you started your topic, I was dying. There's, I know, I thank you for making it easy for me and ma- helping me choose which story to yeah. share. You and I stopped, well, I stopped doing it a long time ago where we were supposed to text DJ Rip what our topics were. And so he would know, so we wouldn't overlap. I stopped doing that. And I was like, Ooh, one of these days, we're just going to like actually have the same topic. And we've gotten so close so many times. 
But now that DJ Rip is now onto different projects and whatnot, we don't have that buffer. And I'm like, we've gone this far without it. And honestly, I kind of can't wait till the day that we actually come up with the same topic. Okay, so now I get to talk about my love of Chicago, right? I guess fair is fair. More specifically, I want to talk about my love of Chicago history and architecture, which I share with our sponsor, Cape Horn Illustration. You know their work isn't all Chicago-centric, right? Yeah, but the pieces I own are. Fair. Cape Horn Illustration is a Chicago-based art studio with a love of architecture in the city. Their work features classic home illustrations, badass ceramics, and so much more. They even take commissions. Check them out at capehorn-illustration.com. Use promo code SHAREDCAPE for 10% off. Low-key, the reason that I still because I hadn't ta- written my notes for the other topic. Because the second you said it, I was like, oh, I'm going to do this topic that's on my list anyway. Mm-hmm. And then I found the Phil and Ian and McKate story. And I was like, mm, I should hedge my bets and still do the other one because this one is about literature. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I said I felt like I was cheating. I was like, I studied this in college. And so we we put our our sources on the show notes all the time. So we can credit who we're giving information from. And, and I was like, a list your professor. I was like, yeah, like, mm. I don't, I'm not reading from my notebooks, but I'm just like, I know this shit. Well, I remember it. I don't know it. For any commentary I made during yours, I will credit uh, a very, a specific Doctor Who episode and uh, Doctor Who and then Dr. Connery at DePaul University. <laughs> Um, it's so interesting about your your story. It's an ancient Greek story that deals with the supernatural, but it has nothing to do with the gods. I feel like all Greek stories that we that we know that are popularized, it has to do with explaining the way things are, like the story of Persephone. You know, she went into the underworld because of she was married to Hades, but for six months of the year, he would let her go back to earth. And that's when we have spring and summer. And when she goes down to the underworld, we have winter and fall. That's explaining why the seasons Mm -hmm. are the way they are. All of them are, this is why the things happen, natural things. It has to do with the gods or some heroic exploit. Or it's using the gods to explain us the talents of a very real person of saying- Yes, Helen of Troy. Yeah. Y'all went to this huge fucking war because this pretty chick, it must be because someone gave her a fucking apple. They didn't give her an apple, they gave Paris an apple, but that's, it's not about Paris. I've never heard- uh, an ancient Greek story that was just a story for story's yeah. sake. Yeah. And the fact that it's like written in what I say in like the second century CE, it's written in this way that even the format it was written in is part of the narrative is like, has like a purpose to telling and selling this like spooky story, framing it as a, as a letter from another character that you've created. Well, and, and it ghost stories have been around forever and Honestly, mostly just for we're sitting around a fire, we're trying to pass the time. Let me see if I can creep you out. And it was interesting that you said the story had a purpose of reinforcing those ideas of the dead exist after they're gone and that we should not interfere or meddle with them. A lot of times ghost stories are parables of like 
don't do this or this will happen. Goblin Market, written by Christina Rossetti, is a story about a girl who, like, they cut her hair off and it's like, it's supposed to be like, don't prostitute yourself. That's the moral of the story. Otherwise, you're going to go to this goblin market. It's awful. But a lot of times, and I think the majority of the times, ghost stories are told and written not to enforce those, but they know these things scare people. So they're just honing in on that. I don't give a shit if ghosts live on after, but you think that. So I know if I tell you this story based on an inherent cultural belief or fear, it's going to heighten it. It's going to make it scarier. A lot of times we think of ghost stories or scary stories as like old wives tales. That's what it is. It's an old wives tale if it's trying to scare you to don't do something. Mm -hmm. I just think that's interesting. I never thought about it like that before. Yeah. And it's funny. I didn't think about it from the fact that that it was like a Greek story that has nothing to do with the gods. Yeah. That's wild. Because now I truly can't think of one. And again, I'm sure there are, but it's literally just like they weren't writing down those stories. Those are just... Dumb little stuff they're doing for fun. They're going to write down the epics of the gods. And if they don't write it down, we can't hear it. Yep. Learn it. Ugh, I love that we both did scary stories. That's that's all I think of when I think of like Halloween. It's like why yeah. why we have certain traditions or whatever and where those come from, which are usually either pagan rituals or or, you know, some sort of religious something of warding off whatever or it's stories and most of the time religious practices of warding off evil things are because of scary stories and whenever i go diving for a story for for a scared history episode i'm always like i don't i don't want to just talk about a gruesome like murder like that's scary yeah but like i don't know that's not what halloween is to me it's funny i I studied British literature and obviously I'm a huge fan of it and whatnot. And I, I'll admit it, I was a snob. I always kind of had no interest in science fiction. I was too scared to read horror or anything. Like if it wasn't kind of mostly realistic or, or fantastical in the sense that it related to, I love like classicism, Greek mythology, stuff that was referencing that. I was like, that's dumb. It's pretend. It's like, childish. And a mutual friend of ours, uh, Kelsey Myers, who is my roommate in Chicago, she is uh, now a ensemble member at Comedy Sports. She is like a horror queen. She loves scary movies. She did this amazing uh, sketch parody that like referenced all the scary movies, but like the monster was a goose. And Like when she was like, all right, when it comes to Halloween, like we're watching scary movies, we're doing all this stuff. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. And then we started talking about movies like Get Out and It and Us and all that stuff and how those are all just allegory. Like authors use science fiction and they use horror as allegories, these like crazy fantastical elements that are so abstract or absurd so that they can talk about really serious things without being pointed or making it more accessible or making it abstract. So you you can put yourself in any situation. Mm-hmm. Horror is amazing for that, for drawing parallels to modern day issues, to personal issues that people go through. And I never thought about that before. And I think that's why I can do horror now. Like, I love these horror stories. Thank you. Kelsey Myers. You grew up. 
I did I it. Still can't it do, I still can't do it. It took me 30 years. My version of doing that is that I just read a lot of sci-fi now. And it's because like a good sci-fi is like kind of inherently political. Oh, 100%. And it's like, I don't care about, I don't, do not care about war sci-fi. And that's why growing up, I didn't think that I liked alien related films. I was like, I don't dislike sci-fi, but if there's a goddamn alien in it, I don't care because I don't care about, oh, our planet's being, Earth's being attacked by an alien and now Mm -hmm. we have to murder it because I'm like, great, we do that to uh, each other plenty. And so I thought that I didn't like sci-fi because I didn't like, and I realized I don't like battle or warfare sci-fi. It's okay if there's like, there's often a war in the past or a war, like a threat of war Mm -hmm. or like, a war is like plot B or C that's also going on that has to do with setting up the world of the story. But not just something about annihilation. Yeah. However, the book Annihilation that has really (laughs) nothing to do with war is great. What do you think of Star Wars? I mean, Star Wars are fun because they're just soap operas in space. It is. Do you know what's funny? Going back to that whole like using horror and science fiction as a means of like empathy and putting yourself in someone's situation or being the underdog. Can I talk about Star Wars fanboys? Ugh! Or any fanboys of comic books, X-Men, Star Wars, whatever. They're the underdog. The X-Men are the underdog. The, the rebels in Star Wars are the underdog. They're the people who are being maligned, marginalized, taken advantage of, put down, And they're all like, yeah, that's me. I'm the hero. Like, no one understands me. And then a marginalized community, like, I don't know, women (laughs) are now starring in Star Wars movies or having a a Latino lead. And they're like, no, fuck that. This is my story. It's not about more marginalized. It's like, come on, guys. You're literally being the Imperial Forces. Yeah. You are being the non-mutants. You are well, being love, the guys that you hate in these like, stories. Well, those, so, those same people will often be like, keep your politics out of Hollywood and out of my movie. And I'm like, stormtroopers are literally Nazis. Yeah. Like the whole thing is just not, it's space Nazis. It's Nazis I, in space. <laughs> Honestly, I would love to see them. <laughs> Somebody just got space Nazis. I feel like it would be so ridiculous. And I challenge you to find any science fiction story that is not political and any horror story that is not about mental illness or a maligned person or marginalized person or someone who is outcast or put down upon. I challenge you to do that. I also wish that I could find, I saw, there's there's like a tweet or a meme going around a while ago that was basically just flipping Star Wars and being like the the Empire is the good guys and the rebels are, are uh, religious fanatics that are... I have I was, also seen that one. I'm like, oh yeah, Jedi is like, like y'all oh, wearing robes. Y'all oh, are about like... Well, je- be a Jed, it's a religion. Yeah, it is. But that is neither here nor there. I just no. was thinking of that as you were describing that. Honestly, oh. it's not really history, but I would love to just have a Star Wars episode, episode where we talk about the references. It's this is a bonus episode. Yeah. Well, there's a bonus episode. We'll do that. We'll do a bonus episode. We'll do a bonus episode. Y'all, do you know where you can find this bonus episode that may or may not come into fruition? Tell them that. 
Oh man, you can get all sorts of bonus episodes and other cool stuff if you support us on Patreon. You go to patreon.com forward slash arcade audio. I believe you have to support at the $5 a month tier, although we have annual memberships now. So I think you save like 10 or 15% if you do one of those. And then you get bonus episodes, not only to shared history, but to every podcast on the Arcade Audio Network. So that's pretty dope. Yeah. And I can only imagine that we're going to have tons of tasty treats and tidbits um, to throw on our social medias. And you can find those on Instagram or on Twitter at SharedPod. Uh, we're going to be posting, I'm sure, tons of spoopy stuff. We've okay. referenced lots of books and movies here, so we'll throw those on. Don't we always? Don't we always? We have a YouTube. We do have a YouTube. Which most of it is just videos from the things that we reference. Sometimes it's trailers of documentaries we told you to watch. Videos of tap dancing, because I reference a lot of tap <laughs> So it, God, it's, tap it's, it kind of bounces all over the place. There's also some really good educate. There's like very good educational YouTube. Um, yeah, and so I've not- thrown some of, the, some of the things that we've mentioned that we've even used as sources before on there. Yeah. We, we said a lot of names and pronounced a lot of things certain ways and referenced a lot of stuff. If we made any uh, mistakes, if you have any questions, corrections, or suggestions, please email us at sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you do want to chat, send us an email. We love it. Yeah. And please, please, please uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really and helps us, helps people find the podcast. It's super beneficial for us. And anything anything over four stars is acceptable. <laughs> that would be five. <laughs> I'm so scared, Natalie. I won't sleep at all tonight. And thank you for that. Are we going to sign off slightly differently because it's scared history? Um, I think we're going to. Thanks for the heads up and the little wink you just gave me. <laughs> On that note, scare you later. Thank you for playing Arcade Audio. Play more at arcadeaudio.net.